So we're in the middle of this 22nd chapter in Tanya, which was keeping us struggling because it gives us, it tells us of a perspective that's different than our own, and yet that's what reality is like. So here we have this separate consciousness and we think that we exist on our own. We feel like we kind of come from ourselves, <laughs> And in fact, there's only one reality and one existence and that's Hashem. It's so hard to break our natural, like our default setting. Our default setting is we feel like we've been separated. And the reason why we got into this discussion was because we're trying to arrive at a deep recognition that there's only one reality, and that's Hashem. And to do that, we were examining the word of Hashem, and we were saying the word of Hashem is an act of revelation, and yet it's not an act of separation because the word never left him. That took us two chapters to come to the realization, so it's hard to get that in one sentence. But if you want to put it in one sentence, you can use the words that Moshe Rabbeinu used when describing what the Jews experienced at Matan Torah. And he said, You were shown to know that Hashem is God. Ain od milvado. There's nothing else besides Hashem. We think of there's a whole world. There's no reality. There's no reality outside of Hashem. How does that mean the word never left him? Because we were saying, when we were talking about the, the, act, the, human, the human experience of speech, we said that when it comes to a human being speaking, what is speech? Speech is the act of revealing our essence to outside of ourself. We have our intellect, we have our emotions. And speech is now taking our inner experience and projecting it outward. When we do that as human beings, we have to separate it from us. There's no way for us to, to create this act of revelation without also creating an act of separation. It's impossible. Once we project our feelings and our intellect to outside of us, now it has an identity of its own. So in the human experience, when we compare that one word to our essence, we say, what is one word to your essence? It's nothing. That's only true as far as us, our essence. But when we compare it separately, then the word has something, meaning and value. It has an existence of its own. But to Hashem, it never left him. So instead of us comparing the word in our experience to the word that has already been spoken, we have to compare Hashem's word as the word exists within ourself before, not only before it was spoken, not even before we thought about it, but before it actually existed. Remember that we said that within our inner essence and identity, within our inner self, in our intellect and emotions, we said there are no words. And that was tricky because... Hey. <laughs> I should look at you every time I do that. I'm trying not to scream hi every time I get so excited and I see somebody. So we're replacing it with a wave. Let's see if it works. <laughs> don't, don't fight your natural <laughs> So, um, so we were saying that we have to look at the word as it, as it exists within us before we even uttered it, before we even thought it, while it was still in its prelingual state. At that state, it exists, but it doesn't exist. Meaning, we have a principle that any time something comes from something else, and that's its only source, it has to exist in the source. Like we said about the rays of the sun within the sun globe. If the rays of the sun are coming from the sun, they have to be there within the sun. But when you come to the sun globe, you don't see rays. So do they come from the sun or they don't come from the sun? Absolutely, they come from the sun, but within their essence, they don't exist. It's only once they leave their essence that they take on an existence of their own. So now we have to use these two parts of the analogy to look at Hashem's word and to say, it's an act of revelation, but it never left its source. And because something that exists within its source does not have an existence, it doesn't have an existence of its own. So to say it doesn't exist, it exists. This is how the previous Rebbe put it. He said that, that the world is in existence and yet it is completely non-existent. It's not that it doesn't exist. It exists, but it exists still as within the source. And once it's within the source, it has no existence. 
So that was all from Hashem's perspective. But then looking from the human perspective, we started to say in chapter 22 that, first we said that speech is two things. Speech is the act of revelation. It's the act of separation. And we said when it comes to Hashem word, it's only revelation. It's not separation because human beings are limited. And so with every positive quality, there's also the detractors. If we want to reveal outside of ourselves, we cannot but separate from ourselves. With Hashem, how it's described in Kabbalistic works, he's tachlis hashlemus mibli chisarein. He's the ultimate perfection without any detractions. So his act of speech is an act of revelation, and yet it is not an act of separation. Okay, but that's from his perspective. Chapter 22, we then started to like, take a new angle, and we said, okay, that's true from Hashem's perspective, but in our experience, the word did indeed become separate from him. So, even in Hashem, because why call Hashem speech speech at all? Because Hashem's speech is revelation, and in our perspective, it's even an act of separation. But it did transform into something other, like the world. Right. The, the world, so we're saying then the world is not separate from him. That's what we're saying. We're saying the world is not separate from him. But... How could it be if the world is not separate from him? How is there holy and there's the unholy? So that's when we start to talk about tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is contractions. Hashem has hidden his own self with contractions that come from him. And through these powerful contractions, he has created, he has given life to beings that even are unholy and deny him. And we started to examine the terminology in the Zohar used to describe the klipa and the sitra achor, the forces of unholiness. What are the terms in the Zohar? The terms from the Torah. Elohim, acherim, other gods. So we, we started with examining first from one angle why they're called Elohim, acherim, and today we're going to take the second angle why they're called Elohim, acherim. The first reason why they're called Elohim, acherim, like we mentioned last time, is because where they get their divine energy from. When we're using the term Elohim Acherim, other gods, in this context, the word Elohim is speaking about Hashem. When we're saying Elohim Acherim, Elohim is God, and Acherim now means Achorayim. Achorayim means the hindermost part. Where do these impure forces derive their energy from? They derive it from Achorayim, the hindermost part of the supernal will. And we discussed the three levels of will, that a person has innermost will, what they want the most. What's their truest intent? And we're going to talk about it more today, later on. Then we said, then there are certain things that that's not the will in, for themselves, for itself, but they still need to do it in order to achieve their will. So, for example, um, you might, you might you know, give somebody a present for an ulterior motive, an employee, let's say, and you're happy to give them the gift. But it's not the same as when you give a gift to somebody who you love. You give a gift to somebody who you love, the intention is the gift to the person themselves. That is, you want them to have this. When you give a gift to somebody you like, but for an ulterior motive, and it sounds very sinister to say an ulterior motive, but this is part of you know, social norms. You're giving a gift to your employee because it's holiday time and that's what needs to be done and it makes gives them more energy when they work because they feel like they have a a you know new interest you're happy with them they feel valued hi it's been a long time so so that you still want to give them the gift but at that space when you're giving them the gift that's no more the innermost will at that point it's an it's a an external aspect of your will but you're still there. You still have some level of enjoyment in it. It's the same as when you work to make money. You want the money, but you also enjoy your work. But then there is another level of will, and that is when a person is forced to give something to their enemy for some reason. So they, do they want to give that thing to their enemy? They kind of do because they want to achieve what is achieved when they give it to their enemy. And yet, within the act itself, they take no pleasure. They, in fact, they hate it. So much so that they won't even look at their enemy. They'll throw it over their shoulder so they don't have to show their face. And that's the way Hashem gives energy to the klipa and the sitra achra. It's here for a reason. What's the reason? Why does Hashem give life force to beings who deny him? The reason is so we can have freedom of choice. That's part of the infrastructure of the universe. But does he want them in and of themselves? No, he hates them. 
The way he gives them energy is from achorayim, the hindermost part of his will. And even that energy that he does give them is, is in a way that encompasses them and it hovers them. It does not fuse or be merged with them. It doesn't become one with them. Except for a very, very minute amount of energy. And this minute amount of energy has to be within them, otherwise they won't exist. But it's in a manner of captivity. So it has no expression whatsoever. And when we talk about it being in captivity, we use the analogy of a, a human soul being incarnated in an animal. Where normally, when a human soul is within the body, and we're going to discuss this as it comes up in chapter 23, which I think we're going to get to today, a human soul is in a human body. The body is so fused with the soul that it just acts out the will of the soul. It's almost like they're one. They're, they are one. Whatever the body is doing is not because the body wants. It's because there's a, a soul vivifying the body, and the body is an implement to act out the soul. So when the energy is felt within something, then it is subservient to it, is nullified to it, and it acts it out. It, it expresses the energy. But when it is in captivity, it doesn't feel the energy, and therefore it doesn't express the energy. So that was why it was called Elohim Acherim, because that's where it's getting its energy from. Now we're going to look at Elohim Acherim again, and we're going to say, actually, it's Elohim Acherim for another reason, too. And that's because they're considered actual idol worship in the simplest sense of the word. So we're almost at the end of the chapter. So we're one, two, three. Yes, we're on page four. It says number four on this one. Okay, question. Sure, so as long as it's right on this. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so what would Hashem like define as being your enemy? I mean, like, in his... So we're saying because it's Hashem's enemy, or is, we're saying in our... In so our, what would, I knew probably, so that what would be defined as an enemy of Hashem or an enemy of ours, someone who wishes to do us harm? Or So when it comes to what we're calling what Hashem giving uh, energy to an enemy, it's those forces that are not, that do not, that deny him. Okay. Now, when we're saying they deny him, he created the possibility for them to deny him. Oh, for free will. For, so we can have free will. So does he love them in and of themselves? No, he hates them. Yeah. But he himself enabled their existence so that we can have freedom of choice. And then they would be considered our enemy too, or our enemy is someone who wishes us harm? Well, they would be considered our enemy too because they're against our... Our, our creator. Our, they're against our creator, but they're against... Also, if we, if we fall prey to them, God forbid, then yeah. they do us harm. I get, get what we, we're, They deny us our life's purpose. I understand. Okay, so now we're looking at the second reason why the, the klipa is called Elohim Acherim. We're on page 4 in chapter 22. It is for re- this reason, too, that the klipa is called other gods, apart from the reason given above, given above, namely that the klipa derived from Achorayim, the hinder part of God's will. Shehi mamish For it constitutes actual idolatry and a denial of the unity of God, the supreme king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. Okay, I'm going to skip this explanation. Well, maybe I'll just read it. Okay, the explanation of these two reasons is as follows. Every created being is animated by two types of divine life force. One is an internalized life force, which is beamed to suit the character and capacity of each individual creature. It is this power that determines the character of each being. It becomes one with it and is felt by it. In fact, this internalized life force constitutes its identity. The second type of life force is of an encompassing transcendental nature. It does not adapt itself to the individual character of each being and is not clothed within it. Rather, it animates it from without, so to speak, from its own level above the created being which is animates. We discussed this at length last class. The Klipo too are animated by these two types of divine life force. The latter type, since it does not permeate them, does not conflict with our ego. Klipa can then consider themselves to be independent beings, even while acknowledging God as the source of their vitality. They do not need to deny him. With regard to this type of divine life force, the Klipos are called Elohim Acherim, other gods, only because they receive their life force from Achorayim, the hinder part of God's will. So we said that there was two levels of energy that every creating being gets. There's the encompassing force, and then there's the internalized, the imminent force. When it comes to the encompassing force, they can acknowledge that that comes from God because they don't have a relationship with it. So it's like the, the thief who prays before stealing. He believes, but his belief is in an encompassing manner that it does not 
affect his identity or his psyche. But once it is a part of you, if you, to acknowledge it means to act consistent with it. They do have divine energy within them, but they don't acknowledge it, they don't perceive it, and therefore they deny it. And it's this divine energy that they act against, and that's another reason why they're called Elohim Achirim. You had a question about that? No, no, I'm not. Yeah. The cle- I did, though. Um, yeah. I can see that there are other, and I deny Hashem and all that, but why Elohim? Why, why are they on the level of God? Oh, so why are they called Elohim? So Rashi over there on the term Elohim Achirim writes the reason why they're called Elohim Acherim because others call them God. They're not God. It's that other people call them God. Based on what? What power? They're not God. By, based on what power? We're going to talk about that. Literally right coming up. That's what I love about this class. Everybody asks the questions that are coming up. They like know what's developing in the chapter. It's incredible. <laughs> the Klipo, however, actually acknowledged the former cannot, however, actually acknowledge the former internalized type of godly life force while asserting at the same time that they are separate from God. To do so would be self-contradictory. For as explained, this kind of life force constitutes the very identity of every created being. The Klipo therefore completely deny this life force, and it is thus truly in a state of exile within them. It is thus with regard to this life force that the Klipos are called Elohim Achirim, other gods in the literal sense of the term, implying idolatry and a denial of God's unity. This the Alter Rebbe now goes on to say. For inasmuch as the light and life force of holiness, meaning the internalized life force, are in a state of exile within the Kalipa, it does not surrender itself at all to the holiness of God. On the contrary, it soars aloft like an eagle, saying, I am, and there is nothing besides me, or as in the statement of Paro, the river is mine, and I have made myself. So this is the craziest thing, <laughs> that everything gets its life force from Hashem, and yet there can be a being who not even just denies Hashem, but goes ahead and says, I am, that's all there is, is nothing else besides me, and I have, my river is mine, everything that you see is mine, I have created myself. How does such a being come into existence? It doesn't even make sense. Like, you can understand, think of how things like devolve, okay? So you have a brilliant theory, some brilliant professor shares it with his students. For him to share his brilliant theory with a very simple student, it's almost impossible, very, very difficult. Actually, a very, very, very brilliant teacher could. They said about like, um, like the Ruggachever, that's, he, the Rebbe got smicha from the Ruggachever guy, and he was just incredible, brilliant man. His, his, in the same city lived the Orsameach, and he said about him, you think the Ruggachever has such a great memory? It's not that he has such a great memory, it's just that he just learned that today. <laughs> he like went through the whole shas, like, you know, <laughs> if people would ask him questions, and he would say, I and I and I and I and I and that means instead of giving them an answer, he would say, look up, and he would give them a page full of references to look up in order to get their answer. He had the whole Torah like in front of his mind. <laughs> Somebody once asked him a question and he wrote, I and I and I and I and he looks at all these sources and he doesn't understand what's the common thread with all these sources. How do they answer his question? So he he brings it to you know a learned rabbi in his town and says, Explain it to me, and the rabbi starts laughing. He says, Every reference that he gave to you says, Amar, it's Amar, it's Amar. <laughs> Okay, so wait, why did I say this part? Um, oh, oh, so a brilliant man like him, the brilliant man like him, they said that when you read his writings, they're very, very cryptic, it's so difficult to understand. But they said that when he spoke, even a two-year-old could understand him. His brilliance was of such a degree that how profound he was, and still a little child was able to understand him. So, but let's say a brilliant professor wants to contract his wisdom to suit the vessels of somebody that's not smart. So he, he teaches somebody who's a little bit less brilliant, a little bit less brilliant, until it comes to a student, a teacher who relates to that student, and he gets it. At the end of the day, from this very, very profound theory is going to come a very simplified form of logic. But it's still going to be some level of wisdom. It's going to be a small measure of wisdom. But from that profound theory is never going to come absolute stupidity. Stupidity doesn't come from profound wisdom because it's not within it. In order for it to come from the wisdom, it has to have been there at some point. Stupidity doesn't come from wisdom. So to have a being 
that denies Hashem is miraculous. I mean, existence is miraculous because no matter how many contractions of Hashem's light is going to be made, even if a person just perceives the very smallest minute of, amount of Hashem's light within them, they would never deny Hashem. It's not possible. If the smallest amount of their source is felt within them, it's impossible for them to feel in opposition to Hashem, to feel like I'm independent. The fact that they could feel like they're independent is a, a, a consequence, of the, consequence of the act of tzimtzum. Hashem contracted his light and created this phenomenon where now uh, something can feel themselves to be an independent being. They feel they're independent, that they're independent even though they receive the life force from Hashem. The life force that they feel that's within them is not sensed at all. So they have divine life force within them, and yet they don't feel it at all. And that's why there could be such a being who says, my river is mine and I have made myself. Absolute opposition to Hashem. Okay, so now let's take this principle and say that the fact that somebody could deny Hashem means that they don't sense him at all within themselves. Okay, so that's the absolute coarse and most vulgar way is to deny Hashem and say my river is mine and I created myself. But let's not take it at its most manifest, coarse, vulgar expression. Let's go up a little level higher and say where does this come from? Where does this expression, I made myself, everything you see is mine, I made myself, where does that come from? The that ego? There you go. <laughs> but that comes from, from like, let's say the family did not believe in Hashem and then they don't believe in Hashem and it could also come from that. Right? Okay, no, right, but what, what we're saying is, we're saying is, that so, let's say somebody has this, to say I made myself is not about a family mm. not believing in Hashem. It's about a very, very strong sense of ego. But take it up higher and where does the sense of ego come from? A sense of ego comes from a very simple thing. Feeling that there is something independent of Hashem. Just the feeling that there's something independent of Hashem is the seed of idol worship. Feeling that there is an independent entity without being as coarse and vulgar as Paro. Just feeling that there's an independent entity besides for Hashem is the seed of idol worship. I think we have to sit with that for a minute. Like, think about it. There could be somebody who is totally observant. Not only are they totally observant, or because the fact that they're totally observant is an expression of the fact that they believe in Hashem. They believe in Hashem. They believe that He is the source of everything in the universe. And at the same time, they feel haughty and proud. But if we look at that feeling that they feel, we have to realize that we're not going to take it away from them. They're observant. They're better than somebody who actually serves idols. But this is not just a small character failing. It's tantamount to idol worship. It's very, very difficult. They say about the Baal Shem Tov that while he was on his deathbed, he was saying the words from Tehillim, chapter 36. Do not lead me down the path of pride. And the reason for it is because Pride is not so easily uprooted. It's not a simple thing. It's something that we have to live with all our life. In fact, eight months before the Baal Shem Tov passed away, he let some of his, his, not his senior students, his younger students, his, we'll call them apprentices, he let them know that he will be leaving the world soon and they should seek for themselves a new master. And they, they suggested the name of a saint and they said, should we go to him? And he said, listen, Whoever you consider to be your new master, ask him this question. Ask him, how does one do away with pride? And if he gives you an answer, you know he's not your master. But if he answers you and says, may God help, you know you have found the one. Later on, when they asked the, the Baal Shem Tov successor, the Magid, they asked him, how do you do away with pride? And he said, it says, Hashem Malach Geos, Malach Geos Lavesh. It says in Tehillim, Hashem reigns. He garbs himself with geos. Geos means majesty, it means excellency, it also means pride. 
the, this attribute of pride comes from Hashem himself. And therefore, it's impossible to utterly, utterly uproot it. It's something that a human being is going to have to battle for all of his life until the last clot of earth <coughs> has been thrown over his grave. So we're looking at pride and we're realizing how dangerous and detrimental it is, but we're also being cognizant that it's impossible to totally eradicate. The Talmud has a very paradoxical statement. It says that, uh, it says about a, a Torah scholar, it says, a, a, a Torah scholar who has pride, it says, Bishamta de Ispe u Bishamta de Lespe. That means a person that, who has pride within him should be excommunicated. A Torah scholar who does not have pride within him should be excommunicated. Bishamta de Ispe u Bishamta de Lespe. Excommunicated should be one who has it, excommunicated should be one who does not. And that's because we need pride in order to accomplish. But we have to realize it's not ours, it comes from Hashem. It can't, we cannot be proud. We can never consider ourselves to be an independent entity from Hashem. The fact that we consider, could consider ourselves to be independent entities than Hashem, it means that we are not feeling the divine life force within us. Even if we would feel the minutest, smallest amount of this divine life force, we would, it would be impossible for us to feel this feeling that I'm independent of Him, that I have my own existence. So when you say pride, you mean like, let's say I accomplished something and I'm being like proud, like I think that I just did that, independent of Hashem, that's what you mean by pride. That's but, right. But instead you can use like the excellence to try to accomplish something great, but you have to know that have the light of Hashem in you and that Hashem is really what, what gave that result, created that result. Exactly. Through exactly you like Exactly that. Vessel, that exactly that. Okay. Exactly in those words, that you are a divine channel. Mm-hmm. The fact that you are channeling Hashem's light, that is the feeling that you should have and, and realize that it's nothing of your own. This yeah. is all coming from Hashem. You can still be proud of that. You can be proud Hashem of that. Hashem gifted you with that ability. We're conscious that it comes from Hashem. It's not deep, but that Hashem felt you were worthy of it. Right, and even that is hard. To sit with that feeling is hard because it's, it could be dangerous. There's a story of... Reb Meisha Alshech, he, he, that time in Svat was a very, you can't imagine all the giants that were living together in Svat at that time. So there was the Arizal, that's, that's who basically interpreted the Kabbalah for us to understand today. There was Rav Yosef Karo, that's the author of the Shulchan Aruch. There was Rav Moshe Alshech, who wrote an interpretation on the Torah. And um, he, Rav Moshe Alshech was a student of the Arizal. And he was once giving a lecture, speaking about, actually, uh, just the past parsha about um, the Avraham purchasing Ma'aras HaMachpelah, the cave of Machpelah, to bury his wife Sarah. So he's giving this, this lecture, and in walks in his own teacher, the Arizal. And in the middle of the lecture, the Arizal walks out. And he was very pained. He wondered, why did my teacher leave the lecture? Now you have to realize that Rav Moshe Alshech was not a simple man. He was not an egotistical person. He was a holy person. He was a giant. And afterwards, he asked his teacher, my rabbi, why did you leave the Arizal? Why did you leave in the middle of my class? And he said, because you were teaching such profound wisdom, and in the middle you felt pride. Mm. When you were teaching that lecture, you know who was at your lecture? There was Avraham. There was Sarah, and even the soul of Ephron Hachiti, the wicked man from whom Avraham purchased the Machpelah, his spirit was there too at your lecture. As soon as you felt pride, Sarah left, Avraham left, and only Ephron, the spirit of Ephron remained, and I didn't want to stay there with Ephron, so I left. (laughs) So so even to, to... to feel too much pride in our accomplishments, knowing that they come from Hashem, could be dangerous. It's so more fine. About creating and accomplishing like a selfless servant. Of but it's Hashem. very, you know. I remember when I was a kid, as a teenager, one of my friends said to me, heard repeated this line. She said to me, like, you know, at that time we thought it was so profound. We thought she said, "I heard that so much more would get done if nobody cared who did it, because the ego wasn't involved." But if you analyze that a little bit more, it's not true at all. Because so much gets done because people know who did it. 
people go out and accomplish because they want to create a name for themselves. If, if, if nobody knew that they were doing it, then a lot of people wouldn't work that hard. But doesn't it say something in the Zohar that, like, about anonymity, about, sorry, I can never say it right Yeah, now. neither can anonymity I, so I'm not going to help you. It's <laughs> like, what you strive for is anonymity. Yes. Yeah, that's, what we're, we're, that's what we're striving for. We're striving to, to neutralize the ego and to realize that we're just a channel of divine energy. And it's, it's difficult. I'm that way. That it's difficult? No, that it's also not, right? Even if you know that it's from Hashem and oh, Hashem gifted me with this particular talent, you know, he must be really with me and not I'm totally acknowledging it's from Hashem. I knew there was an issue with that, so you answered it so perfectly. But look at Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was called the most humble of all men. And did he know of his gifts? He knew of his gifts. He knew that he was the only one who had that kind of experience. But what made him so humble? He said if Hashem would have given this gift to somebody else, they would have done a better job. That wasn't that he wasn't cognizant of his gifts. He knew he had the most profound gifts. The, the Torah tells us nobody else is going to be, that they're not, a Navi like Moshe never arose again. The level of prophecy that Moshe had, nobody else will have. Moshe knew that. And yet he was the most humble man that ever walked the face of this earth. It wasn't that he didn't recognize that he had those gifts. First of all, he recognized that they came from Hashem. But also he thought, if Hashem would have given those gifts to somebody else, they would have done a better job. Okay. So on the bottom of page four. That is why the sages of blessed memory said that arrogance is truly tantamount to idolatry. For the essence and root of idolatry is that it is regarded as an independent entity separated from, separate from the holiness of God. Idolatry does not imply an outright denial of God. As in the statement of the Gemara that they, the realm of Klippa, call him the God of Gods, so that although they do not deny his supremacy, their statement nevertheless constitutes idolatry. How did idol worship begin? And this is how, the, when the Rambam writes, Maimonides writes the laws of, of idol, not, uh, idol worship, he explains that a person cannot worship idols even if they believe in God. They can worship idols even if they believe in God. Because there's such a concept of somebody worshiping another entity and still believing in God. What Isn't was that their God? That was the root of idol worship. The root of idol worship was that they, that they recognized that God is the supreme power, except they called him, they called God the supreme power, the God of gods. It wasn't that they denied that he was God. They, they attributed power to other forces besides him. <coughs> they, they, looked at this, they looked at the bounty that Hashem bestows on the universe. They saw the sun, and they saw that because of the sun, things grow. And so they looked at these divine powers. They looked at these divi- divine powers, and they said, they're like princes. So God is the ultimate power. He is the king. But these other powers, the, the sun, the moon, the celestial bodies, the galaxies, they have power of their own, whether to give more or to give less, they have a say. So it's a, like, just like the king gives some power to his princes or the noblemen, it's a good idea to give pre- presents to the noblemen so that you'll be in their favor because they have power too to give or to withhold. So they, their mistake was that they didn't realize that all these celestial bodies have no power of their own. They're simply divine channels through which Hashem bestows life force upon the universe. So they took the sun that, that, you know, bestows, that gives light, and because of the sun, things grow. They took the sun and they idolized it for itself, and they said, true, it comes from Hashem. Yes, the sun comes from Hashem, but the sun has power of its own. Once they started to see the sun as having power of its own, that was the root of idolatry. That where is where idolatry began, thinking that there is some other being in this universe who has power of its own. They didn't deny God. They but said that God is God, but he's the God of gods. But Hashem did instill power in the sun. And he he did, but he, he channels 
his divine energy through them. They have no power of their own. They are kegarzen biyad hachaitzev, like the axe in the hand of the chopper. They're tools through which Hashem bestows beneficence on this world, so on earth. We are the same then. That we are. T- we that we are. Don't have any independent power then? Then how do we have freedom of choice? Human beings are the craziest thing because we have freedom of choice. The sun and the moon don't have freedom of choice. They are just simply channels through which Hashem bestows bounty and life force on the universe. And the, the, let's look at, there's two terminologies that the Alter is using here. There is the root and source, the root and, he says, the, the root and core, what is the words exactly he uses? Iker v'shairish, the essence and root of idolatry. There's the essence of root of idolatry, and then there's avodah mamish, there's actual idolatry. The essence and root of idol worship, where does idol worship come from? Is thinking that there's something else in this universe that has a separate existence. That's where it all starts. That's where the little split happens. The little fissure, the little split that then gives room for idolatry is giving, giving uh, credence or power or existence to anything else besides Hashem. It has existence. Hashem allowed it to exist. So it has existence, but does not have existence of its own. So like a hammer can't do anything unless we grab it and we, so it's the same thing with like the sun. We won't be able to do anything unless Hashem gave it. The exactly. Sun's power, the sun, we, they worshipped it for its light, but its light comes from Hashem. Its light comes from Hashem, and not only does its light come from Hashem, Hashem doesn't give the sun freedom of choice whether or not to give light. It has no choice. It will have to give light. So to, to look at the sun and say, to pray to the sun for more light or or to help the plants grow better is the, the most ridiculous thing. Mm-hmm. It has no freedom of choice. It cannot choose whether or not to give light. But can you be thankful to Hashem that he gives the sun Absolutely. so that the plants can grow and that we can see? Absolutely. Yeah. We should be thankful to Hashem for the sun. But to praise the sun is giving, saying that the sun is something of its own. So that's an idol worship. But then let's take that and say, where does idol worship come from? It's saying that there's some existence that has a separate identity. That's where it comes from. That there is something that has existence outside of Hashem. Excuse me. I never want to contradict you or the Torah or any, you know, our learnings of of Hashem. But I have a question to ask you. In, uh, before the, during the Musaf, or mm-hmm. during the tefillah, mm-hmm. especially Rosh Hashanah, I believe. Yeah. And we separately pray Mori Geshem, or even in the regular everyday Shemona Esther. So what does that mean? What does that mean? We are praying for Geshem rain. But who are we but, praying to rain? But we, but everything we pray is to Hashem, and the tefillah, and learning the Torah. You know what I mean? Wait. But we're saying, please, Morid Geshem, the, uh, you say, wind is what? Okay, Mashiv Haruach Morid HaGeshem. Right, there we go. And Mashiv Haruach Morid HaGeshem, it's very important to know the translation of the prayers. Mashiv Haruach Morid HaGeshem, the one who makes the wind blow and the rain fall. Who's the one who makes Hashem. the rain? Hashem. Hashem. Well, then why are we separately asking for it, Hashem? That's in Hashem's beautiful creation of all and everything. You're that saying Hashem creates. Wait, so then your question will then go as follows. Why ask Hashem for health? Why ask Hashem for wealth? It's all the same thing. Well, why are you saying that the uh, the sun is idolatry if you pray separately? No, the we're sun? not sa- we're saying that if somebody prays to the sun, it's idolatry. Oh, to the sun. Yeah. Like bowing down. I'm sorry. I came <laughs> in late and I'm sorry for that too. Forgive me for two boo-boos. So, so praying to the sun is idol worship. Of course. Agree? Uh, absolutely. Okay. But okay. we do, like the other, this one young lady said, but we do pray to Hashem and thanking Hashem That's for the right. sun. And That's right. That's right. And guess what? If we stick with a chapter, we'll get to that too. Okay. <laughs> but I can see why you were confused because... because Maybe I... Yeah. Right, because it was about... Not about praying that we should get bounty, but praying to the tools that Hashem bestows, the mediums through which Hashem bestows bounty. To pray to the sun is idol worship. Absolutely. Okay. 
Um, okay, for the essence of root of idolatry is that it is regarded as an independent entity separate from the holiness of Hashem. And so that's how idol worship began, is that they called Hashem the God of gods. That they, they recognized his supreme power, that he was in charge of everybody, but they attributed power or separate identity to anything outside of themselves. Only because they consider themselves too to be separate entities and independent beings, and thereby they separate themselves from the holiness of God, since they do not efface themselves before Him. For the supernal holiness rests only on that which is surrendered to him, as is explained above. Okay, so Klippa, what makes Klippa Klippa is that they consider themselves to be an independent entity. As soon as somebody thinks of themselves to be independent, they are automatically denying the unity of God, that he is the only existence that exists. Where does holiness rest? And this is what we learned in chapter 6. Holiness only rests in that which nullifies itself towards Hashem. So, for example, when, when somebody feels Hashem's presence, then they express that He is the only existence. As soon as they are not cognizant of His presence, as soon as they don't, the divine light that which, which is within them, they don't sense it and they don't perceive it, they start to think of themselves as a separate identity, even if they are <coughs> observant. Even if they agree that God is the only power and the supreme power, and yet they could feel themselves to be an entity apart, it means that they are not feeling the divine energy within them in an imminent way. So, so the more that a person is nullified towards Hashem, the more that they neutralize their own ego, to that extent does the holiness reside within them. And to the extent that they feel self-importance, to that extent, are they not, are they denying Hashem? Yes. Is that sort of like a mother's relationship to the child? That the mother will do anything for that child, thus um, quiet her ego, in a sense, as we... You're saying the fact that a mother neutralizing her, like giving everything away for her child, is that like a neutralizing of the ego? Like she has her own will, and yet she, she um, does the will of the child. That's like a neutralization of the ego. So, so in that instance where the mother is acting with humility, that's an act of holiness. Every act of humility means moving your own ego out of the way and recognizing that there's only one existence, and that's Hashem. And that's why this is something that's very amazing when it speaks about um, deciding the halacha. So. It's famously known that there were two schools in the Talmud, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. They argued very often. And um, the halacha was usually like the school of Hillel. In almost every instance, the halacha was like the school of Hillel. Now, it says about the school of Shammai that they were They were much sharper than the school of Hillel. So why was the halacha like the school of Hillel? Remember, they were both smart. <laughs> they were both diligent, they were both hardworking, they were sharp, but the school of Shammai was sharper, and yet the school of Hillel, the halacha was usually like them. And why was the halacha usually like them? It says, Shanaychin va'aluvin, they were like, they were uh, humble and forbearing, and whenever they would state their own opinion, they would first state the opinion of base Shammai. I don't care who's nicer, it's about who's smarter. Who, why is the halacha decided according to who is nicer? It's about who's smarter. But that's maybe when you're talking about you know, your regular class of logic. But when we're talking about divine wisdom, when you're nicer, when your ego is more neutralized, you're more of a channel for the divine. And so therefore, the school of Hillel, who was a very humble character, the halacha was like them because they were more in tune to the divine will. The fact that they were able to neutralize their own ego, that they were able to be humble, and they were able to state their, their colleagues' opinion contradictory to their own before they said their own, was a sign that holiness was residing with them. Or not just a sign, it was a cause that holiness was residing through them, and therefore they were more in tune to the divine will, and halacha was decided like them. So would that infer that if someone cannot be open to anyone else's opinion than its own, um, that his ego is... Too big. Yes, 
for sure. Nobody's saying you have to agree. They didn't agree with Beis Shammai, but they were, they were open to hearing. Yeah. Not being open to hearing is an act of ego. Right. Being able to, to, to neutralize your own ego and realize that there's only one existence. The one existence is Hashem. I don't have an existence for myself. I'm here just as a divine channel. That allows holiness to rest on us. As soon as somebody feels that they're self-important, and look what I have accomplished, and look how special I am, and I'm smarter than you, and I have a better opinion than you, at that point, they are not making room for Hashem. That's the one thing Hashem says, I and he cannot dwell together when it comes to somebody who's of egotistical nature. The Talmud says... Of, These were good old then. What if it's... To say that they were arrogant? No, they were not arrogant. Shammai was not arrogant. It's just that the school of Hillel was more humble. Okay. Shammai was, they were, they were Gadolim, like you said. They were Tzadikim. In fact, they were arguing for three years. And, and they were saying, who is right? Are they right or are they right? And that's when a voice came from heaven and said, Elu va'elu divrei elokim chayim v'halacha kabez Hillel. Both these and those are the words of the living God. But the halacha is like this Hillel. Because they both tuned into what was divine energy, but what was what was to be implemented in the physical world according to Hillel. But Shammai too tapped into the divine energy. It was just a certain level of divine energy, because the the school of Shammai were very holy. It's not that they weren't holy. It was just that, okay. right? Thanks. So no, but thanks for asking that because it makes it sound as though I'm saying that Shammai was that it egotistical. Was just, this followed up on our discussion of. Um, People have considered Avdei Avodazara because they saying that you know they created themselves and the river or whatever that it's not from Hashem. They're very separate from Hashem, and that's Avodazara. So I get the part that they can be, you know, egotistical. But how would how could they possibly believe that they created themselves? When did they do this? How did they do this? Do they think they? I mean, they remember creating. America says it too. I'm a self-made man. <laughs> people say that a lot. I've heard people say like, you should have known what kind of family I came from. My mother was so controlling and my father was, and I look, I, I look at myself, like I've managed to raise a family and, and I'm a self-made man or I'm a self-made woman. I have news for you. <laughs> exactly. No such thing as a self-made man. So, so Paro maybe said it in the ultimate sense of the word that I actually created myself. But there are people when you speak like that, like I am a self-made man, even not to, even not to give credit to your parents. I don't even care if your mother had psychological problems. She did a few things right for you. To say that I am a self-made man is is just is just to the nth degree. Paro is a great example because he was trying to convince the world that, that he's he a god to go to the bathroom. He's exactly. A god. But did he really believe? Did he really that? believe I mean, it? <laughs> I don't know if he really believed it, but he made that statement. To go ahead and say, I made myself, is the most vulgar expression. It's the most, it's, it's the most actual form of idolatry. It's the most denial of the one who made you. Okay. For this reason, the Zohar calls the Kalipas peaks of separation, meaning they are as haughty as mountain peaks, and thus they are separate from Hashem. The expression in the Zohar when speaking about the Klippa is Ture uh, Depreda, um, peaks of separation. Because they are peaks, therefore they are separation. Because they hold themselves high, therefore they separate themselves from the holiness of Hashem. But this constitutes a denial of God's trinity. Since his unity implies that all is esteemed as nothing before him and that it all is not utterly nullified before him. And before his will, which emanates the, animates them all and which constantly brings them into being out of nothingness. Arrogance, therefore, which is the aggrandizement of one's own identity, is diametrically opposed to the surrender of one's identity, which is a corollary of the concept of God's unity. Arrogance thus represents a denial of the unity of God, and for this reason, the Gemara equates it with idolatry. So, to sum up this little section that we did now, and then to put it into context, this last section that we did was that the Klippa and the Sitra Achara are called Elohim Acherim, other gods, others call them gods, actual idol worship in the fact that they deny God. 
first we said it's just where they get their life force from, but the fact that they can hold themselves to be an entity apart is actual idolatry. And therefore, following along this line of logic, what is the root of idolatry? It all stems from, actual idolatry is its most manifest form, but it all stems from the, the little break, the little crack where it happens is thinking that there's something else, that there's an existence that has an entity apart from Hashem. Like you could say, what's wrong with being arrogant? It's just, what is it? It's, it's just like a moral failing. But where does this moral failing come from? It comes from that there's God and then there's me. And, and I acknowledge that he is supreme, but then it's up to me to decide, well, how much I will listen to him or if God forbid not to listen to him at all. It all stems from feeling that there's something separate from God. So let's close this chapter by um, saying that Klippa and Sitra were able to come into this world because Hashem did something unbelievable, and that's called symptom. He contracted and hid his life force so that there can come into being things that deny him and are impure. And he does give them life. That's why they're here. He gives them life. He gives them life from his hindermost aspect of his will, not because he loves them, because he hates them, but in order for us to have freedom of choice. That's where they get their life force from, and that's why they're called Elohim Acherim. They, they get their life force from the hindermost aspect of the supernal will. And because they don't feel the divinity within them, then they can have the chutzpah to say, I made myself. And that's why we can understand why the sages in the Talmud told us that arrogance is tantamount to idol worship. To hold yourself proud is to say, I'm in existence for myself. And that is exactly where idol worship comes from. That's the root and seed of it to think that there's an entity outside of itself. So this closes one unit, and that's the unit where we are trying to understand that there's only one reality, and that is Hashem. There is no existence outside of Hashem. We were coming to understand this so that we can understand how it is that every single mitzvah is an expression of the positive commandment, I am God, your God. Every single avera or transgression is, is going against you shall not have any other gods. Next chapter, we're going to understand how it is true that every single mitzvah is an expression of, I am God, your God. So, you look like you had a question. Oh, lots of <laughs> <laughs> in a way, it's so clear that he's on a way lower level because if you're part of God, if you're connected to God, a part of him, but if you're separate from him, then there's no kedusha. You're you're very low. Yeah. And on the other hand, on the same hand, really, it's also a very tragic place to be. It's, you know, we feel best when we feel connected to Hashem. When we feel separated, you know, we're lost. It's so true. It's so true what you're saying because people can feel like, ah, oh, that's so hard. Like not to have my own ego. It's so much harder to have your own ego. You're living in such a sad place. Yeah. It's like. It's, it's such a, why is it at this shul and this 